I am very sorry that Andrew came down with a cold this week. <laughs> Nevertheless, I have a feeling that the real reason he didn't want to preach this week <laughs> is that we stand once again before a genealogy. Another genealogy! Did you know that there were so many genealogies in the Bible? The recent series that we've been working through as a congregation together from the book of Genesis <coughs> is a great preparation for the series that we begin today. For the next few months, more or less, we will be working straight through the Gospel of Matthew. We will read the gospel in its entirety together, and we will be preaching from selective passages throughout it. So there's a kind of double advent here. Not only do we look forward to Christmas, but I hope that you'll also look forward to working through this, the first book of the New Testament, as a congregation together. As we journey through Matthew, as we begin our journey through Matthew today, we're going to reflect for a few moments on these opening verses. And I'd like us to take the following thought as a kind of guideline for us. Jesus' genealogy here at the beginning of Matthew demonstrates that God was preparing the ground for the coming of his Son. Also, the account of Jesus that Matthew gives us is prepared for us in this genealogy. The title of the sermon today is Roots, and it's a good title because here we have a family tree. And if we put in a different way the thought that we just talked about, we could say it something like this. The opening verses of Matthew not only show us how Jesus is rooted in the history of the Jewish people, they also show us how Matthew helps to root us in some of the major themes that will grow and develop into the story of Jesus that he tells us in his gospel. This genealogy is packed with a lot. I'm not a gardener, uh, which is a shame, because I realize that this is a great British pastime. <laughs> but I understand that when you cut a piece off of one plant and you want to try and root it somewhere else, you have to get some rooting power, which I assume is a kind of plant hormone that will stimulate this cut piece to actually begin growing roots. In a way, the genealogy here in Matthew is rooting power. It's there not only to show us how Jesus is rooted in the history of God's people, but to stimulate for us some roots as we begin to think through the big themes that will run straight through this gospel. So if you'll allow me today, we're going to be spending some time looking at this parts of this genealogy and thinking in particular about four ways that Matthew has introduced to us big themes 
that we'll want to look out for as we continue to go through this gospel well into the next year. We'll be thinking about the book of Genesis, surprisingly. We'll be thinking about Jesus as a royal figure. We'll be thinking about Jesus as the son of Abraham. And we'll be thinking about what it means that Joseph was the husband of Mary, the mother of the Messiah. So we begin then, back where we left off in a way, with Genesis. Matthew's Gospel opens the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That is not the only way to translate this interesting phrase. In fact, the word that Matthew uses here is the word Genesis. The book of the Genesis, the origin, the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah. It is highly likely that Matthew intends for us here to catch this link to the first book of the Jewish scriptures, Genesis, the book of beginnings. In fact, as we will watch Matthew developing the story of Jesus as he wants to tell it to us, one of the things that we'll find is that Matthew repeatedly goes back to the first five books of the Bible, the books that are known as the five books of Moses, because Moses is the one to whom these are attributed. But why Moses? What's the big deal about Moses? Moses was, of course, one of the great prophets, as Deuteronomy names him, of God's people. And he's the one through whom God gave his laws to his people, through whom God established a covenant with his people. There are five books of Moses. This is very interesting because Matthew, as he tells us about Jesus, takes the teaching of Jesus and basically collects it together into five lengthy sermons that are run throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Why five? It's likely that Matthew is presenting Jesus along the lines of Moses, who came before. That Jesus, as the one who will inaugurate a new covenant, Jesus is the one who is bringing new revelation, new laws, new messages to his people. This is something, then, that we'll be looking out for as we go through the text of Matthew. Moreover, it's not an accident. As we move into the birth story of Jesus, that we discover that Jesus has to flee. His family flees to Egypt. And then Matthew tells us that after those who were pursuing him had died, he comes back to the promised land. And he quotes them, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Not just Genesis, but Exodus is a key part that Matthew will play on as he tells the story of Jesus. Matthew, right here in the very beginning of his gospel, 
is already starting to point us back to the first five books of the Bible, those books that Moses is said to have written down. In order to point us to the ways in which Jesus stands within the big story of Israel that is introduced to us in those first five books. So our first point then, Matthew begins by looking back to Genesis, the text that we've spent the last few months ourselves studying. Do you think it's an accident that he begins with a genealogy then? How many genealogies did we read in the first 11 chapters of Genesis? And here's Matthew pointing us back and beginning his account of Jesus with a genealogy. Jesus, if we can summarize that, is rooted in the great story of the Bible. The story that begins in Genesis. And by pointing us back to those first books of the Bible, Matthew is also rooting us, cluing us in to some of the central themes that will continue through his gospel. Specifically, Matthew is relating to us something about Jesus as the great prophet Moses, who will save his people by leading them out of their bondage. And we will see that beginning to play out as we look at the first few chapters of this gospel. But let's move then to our second point. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. I think most of us know this, but sometimes it bears repeating. Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. This is not the surname of Jesus. I knew a professor who would say, it's not as if Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a title. It is a claim, not a last name. What does this claim entail? As we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus is placed squarely in the tribe of Judah and in the line of David. And he is descended from a number of the great or at least important, not always good, kings of Israel and later Judah. Jesus, the Messiah, is the king of the Jews. This is part of what this title, Christ, is claiming for our Lord. This is why Matthew specifies that Jesus is the son of David. As I mentioned, some of the most famous kings in the biblical account, some of them infamous, that's people like David himself, but also his great son Solomon, the two kings who ruled over both northern and southern parts of Israel as it was one united country, but also many of those who rule after 
uh, Israel and Judah split from each other and even began to squabble amongst themselves are figures who are named in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus not only descends from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from which the kings were supposed to come, but he also comes from David and Solomon and from other important Old Testament kings. It's no accident that Matthew identifies the Messiah as standing in the line of Davidic kings such as Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jeconiah. These kings were the very kings to whom the great prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah ministered. In fact, it's Ahaz to whom Isaiah is sent to give a sign from God that a virgin will be great with child and will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Matthew will cite that very text for us in verse 23 of the chapter that we're looking at this morning. Isaiah is an important prophet in the Gospel of Matthew. And just as Jesus is placed in some way in comparison with Moses, he is also placed together with Isaiah, the one who proclaimed that light would shine on the Gentiles. But even more importantly, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this king, Jesus, is also compared with the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew we have an image of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. We also have, running throughout the Gospel of Matthew, deep tensions between Jesus and those who imagine themselves to be in power. If you think back, especially to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah was not accepted by the kings to whom he was sent. Jeremiah was a rejected prophet, not one whose message was embraced by the rulers of God's people at that time. And this will, in fact, be a major theme that runs through the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. It's important that we become clear on this from the very beginning. Because Matthew will say some things which are very harsh relative to other Jews of his time. The primary target that Matthew has in mind are those who are leaders of God's people, but who are not being the kinds of shepherds of God's people that God desired. It is therefore not a mistake that when the wise men show up and come to King Herod, who was not himself a Jew, but was considered king because the Romans had put him in place. It is not an accident that when King Herod heard the good news, that the wise men knew that the king of the Jews had been born, he was greatly shaken, and all of Jerusalem with him. A new king is in town, Jesus, the Messiah. 
And this king is the one whom God had promised. The one whom God's people had looked for. And now he has arrived. But like Jeremiah, this son of David will face rejection. Not only from the present king, but also from those who viewed themselves as the religious authorities and leaders of the Jewish people at the time. We will find time and time again that Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the scribes, and with the high priests who largely ran things in Jerusalem when the Roman uh, Pilate was not around. These are the people with whom Jesus comes into conflict precisely because God has deemed them to be unfit shepherds for his people. In keeping then with the idea that Jesus is a king, Matthew will also have a great deal to say about the kingdom over which Jesus rules. He speaks at times of the kingdom of God. Though primarily, Matthew will speak of the kingdom of heaven. This theme will run right through his gospel. And it's another one that we'll need to be looking for as we begin to explore this text together. Before we continue to look at the next point, I think it would be good for us to pause for just a moment and ask a bit more about why this theme of Jesus as King is so important. Why is it so important to recognize that Jesus has a kingdom? We need to notice that Matthew has structured his genealogy in a very artful way. He hasn't just randomly put these names together. If you remember, he paused at a few points to note particular times in the history of God's people. He structures his genealogy from Abraham to King David, and he pauses. And then he moves from King David to the exile in Babylon, and he pauses. And then he moves from the return from the exile to the birth of the Messiah. Why is he so concerned with kingship? David, the first great king of Israel, who replaced uh, Saul when he failed. Why is he so concerned with exile? The time of Jerusalem was destroyed and the kings were taken away. And why is he so concerned about the return from exile? In the time in which Jesus lived, the time in which Matthew lived, there were many Jews who looked at King Herod and thought, this is not really the one who's supposed to be our king. The reason is in part because King Herod was underwritten, as it were, he held his power because the Romans allowed him to hold it. God's people had returned to their land after having gone to Babylon. But 
But they were not free in their land. They were not ruled by one of David's own children. They were ruled by the Romans through King Herod. Many Jews then still thought of themselves as really in a kind of exile. Yes, they had come back from Babylon. Yes, they had rebuilt the temple. But where were all of the great promises that they expected from their God? Why didn't a, a sire of David, a child of David, sit on the throne in Jerusalem? And why had the glory of God not filled the second temple in the way that it did in Solomon's time or in the way that it did when Moses set up the tabernacle? People were wondering, where is our king? Where is the kingdom that God had promised us? This is why Matthew has focused us in part on the importance of kingship and on the importance of the exile. Because in his time, he knew that there were people in Israel who were still waiting for the rightful king to arrive. When then Matthew announces at the very beginning of this genealogy that the Messiah, the son of David, has come, this is good news. This is news that liberation is coming. That the promises of God are about to be fulfilled. That the glory for which the people longed was going to return to Jerusalem and to the temple. Jesus then, to summarize the second point, is rooted in the line of the great kings of God's people. He is the rightful king who rules over God's kingdom. But by highlighting this for us, Matthew is also rooting us in a major theme that will play out in the rest of his gospel. Those who currently rule over God's people, the political leaders like King Herod, Romans later like Pontius Pilate, as well as the religious leaders like the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests and scribes will not find this to be good news. Nevertheless, God's kingdom is about to arrive with his king on earth as it is in heaven. We move then to the third major theme in this genealogy. Another theme that will run right through this gospel. Having been schooled, as we have been in genealogies over the past few months, we know that we should start looking at the patterns. And in particular, we should take notice when the patterns are broken. Think back to Genesis, when Enoch broke the pattern of death by being the one whom God took because he walked with him. 
Matthew's genealogy is equally full of surprises. I don't know if you noticed it as we read through, but there were points where the pattern broke in some pretty amazing ways. There are women who are named in this genealogy. This is not unique in ancient genealogies, but it isn't a common pattern, nor is it the pattern that Matthew basically works through for most of the genealogy. You have so-and-so being the father of so-and-so, and then five times a woman is either named or alluded to. That's interesting. Did it catch your attention? Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. They stand out in this genealogy. God is doing something new. Something remarkable. Something that breaks the cultural patterns that have been accepted by so many for so long. Here, Women are called out as those who stand in the line of the Messiah. But these aren't just any women. With the exception of Mary, these women either are or are related to Gentiles. People who are not descendants directly of Abraham through the patriarchs of Israel. Now this is one of these points where Matthew goes beyond what we learn in just the Old Testament itself. We're never told that Tamar is a Gentile. And yet we know from other Jews that lived at the same time as Matthew that the tradition was that Tamar had converted, become one of God's people having herself been a Gentile. And here's Tamar, a Gentile, named as one of those who stands in the line of Jesus. The case is even clearer when we come to Rahab and to Ruth. Matthew is stretching our minds here. We have to look back for a bit to our Old Testament stories. So if you're a bit rusty on that, that's okay. But if you think about Rahab, Rahab was the prostitute who harbored the spies and kept them safe in Jericho so they weren't caught and found out when they went into the promised land. And because Rahab believed that the God of Israel was able to defeat Jericho and that God's people would inherit the promised land, Rahab was welcomed in to God's people. And now we discover that Rahab is one of those in whom Jesus' line is rooted. And what about Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite, another Gentile who chose to leave behind her own land to leave behind the gods she had grown up worshiping 
and to go with Naomi back into the land of Israel and to cling to the God of Israel. Ruth is brought into the genealogy. And then there's this very strange comment about Bathsheba. We know that Matthew has no trouble naming the women whom he wants to highlight. Why does he not name Bathsheba? Notice who he does name. Uriah. What do you remember about Uriah? This was, of course, one of David's great failings. When he slept with Bathsheba, and discovering that she had conceived, sent Uriah the Hittite out to the front lines of the battle, knowing that her husband, a Gentile, would face certain death. Why has Matthew drawn our attention to Gentiles? The reason, I think, is because he is highlighting the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Remember that God's great covenant with Abraham included blessings that would be poured out not just on the people of Israel who would come from his loins, but Abraham, God said, would be a blessing to all the nations. Here is the rightful king of the Jews, the Messiah, the one who is firmly rooted in good Jewish lineage, who is a son of Abraham. And yet Matthew takes son of Abraham and gives it a little twist, pointing out that in the line of the Messiah himself, there were those who were invited from the outside to come and belong on the inside. This theme will run right through the Gospel of Matthew. It is no accident that Matthew begins here by highlighting Gentiles being included in the line of the Messiah, and Matthew is the Gospel which ends with the so-called Great Commission, where the risen Lord tells his followers to go and make disciples, not just of the Jewish people, but of all nations. Matthew is keen to show us that in Jesus, God is doing something new. Not just highlighting women, but also highlighting Gentiles. Those who Paul says were far away from God, from the covenant, have been brought near through Jesus. This is a major theme that we will trace as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' own genealogy, to summarize again, not only is rooted, not only looks back and roots him in the lineage of the Messiah with some surprising figures there, Jesus' genealogy also points us ahead 
to the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham himself, that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Gospel of Matthew is not just good news for those who are Jewish, for those who longed for the rightful king, and who hoped for the glory of God to be restored to his people and to their land, the Gospel of Matthew is also good news to us, to those of us who are not genetically descended from Abraham, but who are invited to join in this genealogy. This is the rooting powder that is applied to us as we are grafted in, as it were, to the family of the Messiah himself. We come then to point four. Another break in the pattern. Did you notice what happened with Joseph? Matthew wraps up the genealogy not by referring to Joseph in the same way that all the other fathers had been identified, but by saying that Joseph was the husband of Mary, the mother of the Messiah. What's going on here, Matthew? What are you doing? Another big surprise. Joseph is the husband of Mary. He is the legal father of Jesus. But as we read a little further in this gospel, we discover that he is not the father of Jesus. The father of Jesus is none other than God himself. Jesus is not just rooted in the history of Israel. He doesn't just have a fascinating family line. Jesus is also the one who comes to us from heaven. The son of David, the son of Abraham, and here, for those who have ears to hear, the son of God himself. Jesus' lineage is full of surprises. These surprises are good news. Good news for the people of Israel and good news for, for those of us who are Gentiles. If we are in Christ, as the Gospel of Matthew will invite us to become his disciples, followers of Jesus, if we are in Christ, we are joined to this big story. We are rooted in Jesus' family tree. We confess not only that we belong to Abraham, but even greater, that we belong to our Father, God himself. <coughs> this genealogy becomes our genealogy when we become citizens of the kingdom over which Jesus reigns.
This is our Advent hope. Not only do we look back to the promised one who would come, we look forward to his coming again so that the one who is God with us will bring the kingdom in its fullness and we will be with God fully and forever. Even as we heard in Isaiah 11 as we began our worship this morning. In conclusion, as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be learning a lot about the great biblical heritage that we, as Gentiles, now share in. We're going to be learning about our Lord, the Messiah. We're going to be learning about our Father, God. We're going to be learning what it is we hope for in Christ. And we're going to be learning about how we ought to live as disciples who belong to the kingdom. So that in us, God's will on earth might be done, just as it is in heaven. I hope you're excited for the journey. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.